Welcome to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. At Evolution NHS, we're committed to helping people and NHS organisations realise their potential. The goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. We collaborate with NHS organisations to help them build high-performing digital teams. We achieve this by curating and sharing insights into the ever-evolving NHS and digital industries' best practices. So I'm Rose from Evolution Recruitment, and today I'm your host. And what a lineup we have here today. We've got three brilliant leaders discussing digital access and inequalities today. The panel is Samuel Taylor, Dan Gibbs and Lynna Burnham. Their views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect official position or policy of their organisation. So we're going to get into it with some introductions and hear from the panellists themselves before moving on to the topic and discussion. So with that, we'll come in with Samuel, if you can introduce yourself first, please. Thanks, Rose. Um, I'm Samuel Taylor. I'm the ICS uh, program lead for the uh, PCNs uh, in Frimley and Bob. So commissioned by NHSE and Department of Health. I work for CHP. Personally, I'm passionate about child development. I'm a, I'm a clinician at heart. I'm a nurse and a health visitor, um, but worked in taxation before I got back into healthcare. So I'm very passionate about uh, children's development. Love that. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining me today. And I'll come to you next, Dan. Hi, uh, I'm Dan Gibbs. I'm the Director of um, System Performance and Operations for Hampshire and the Isle of Wight. Um, and I'm really pleased to be here today, meet colleagues. Um, my, the areas that I'm really passionate about are obviously addressing inequalities, uh, inequality of access to healthcare, which is a big issue for the NHS across um, England, but particularly in Hampshire and the Isle of Wight, where we, we do have a really broad um, gap between um, groups accessing healthcare. So I'm um, really interested to hear the views today. Hopefully I can take something away that will help me um, improve that for our citizens. Love that. Thank you very much, Dan. And lastly, Linda. Thanks, Rose. Lovely to meet everybody today and great to be on uh, here with you again. Um, so my name's Linda Vernon and I am currently the uh, head of Digital Empowerment at Lancashire and South Cumbria Integrated Care Board. Um, I am very passionate about digital equalities and um, digital inclusion. Um, I think it has the potential to um, increase or decrease health inequalities. So I think it's, it's you know, it's something that's become, it, I'm, I'm so grateful that it's become so commonplace for people to be talking about it. Um, I'm also quite passionate about um, leadership and culture in general, so um, organisational development and how we are supporting our staff um, and our workforce in these sort of changing times during system reform and the setup of ICBs and how technology has changed the way we work over the last few years in particular. Thanks, Lyndon. Thank you all for joining me. It's uh, great to have you here. Um, so what we'll do is we'll move on to the discussion. We'll start with Dan's question, which is in post-digital healthcare, what are the determinants of inequality and how should policy evolve to resolve that? Dan, if you can take it away for us. I'm, <clears throat> thanks, Rose. I'm, I'm quite interested actually to hear what Linda has to say about this because obviously in, in her intro, she's highlighted that um, access to digital and broaden uh, inequalities as well as narrow them as well. And I, when 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 I was thinking about what what question I would bring to the panel, I kind of assumed that we were all on trajectories to sort of level up our digital offer across the piece. And and 
I was keen to understand what that might mean. And when we're thinking about um, how we then kind of drive change broadly, either at a system level or, or regionally or nationally, what, what are the things that we need to see from from central government or from from the NHS itself to to, to make it better to 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 narrow those gaps and and address those those um, areas of inequality? So really, really keen to get colleagues' view about that. Maybe how we leave the market a bit. Yeah, thanks, Dan. I'll come straight to you, Linda, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, I'm going to refer back to a fabulous paper um, that Public Health Wales published a couple of years ago during the pandemic that was looking at um, the correlation between digital inequalities and health inequalities. Um, and it's there's, there's an image in that paper that um, I share on every slide deck I ever present on on um, on digital inequalities, which is looking at the fact that there are the direct impacts on access to healthcare. So by um, promoting lots of digital tools, particularly if we don't continue to keep open the non-digital channels, we have the potential to exclude people and reduce their access to healthcare. But actually, digital. Um, as a means of self-management, as a way to um, access healthcare at other times of the day, to access other services, maybe pre-healthcare, means that it could potentially reduce health inequalities and give more people more access if they have the access to digital tools in the first place. So there's that direct one, but the big thing for me, and, and this is something I suppose I'm quite passionate about, is the wider determinants of health, or as some people call it now, the core determinants of health. Because we know from you know research twenty odd years ago that healthcare really only impacts about twenty percent of health outcomes, and everything else is down to your employability, your educational status, your sense of belonging to a community, um, your sense of purpose in life, uh, your income, your housing, your your connectedness, and your connectedness with things like nature. So I think digital has a massive potential. To, to solve a lot of those problems. And my question in a little bit sort of is, is trying to um, sort of work towards that cross-sectoral impact, really. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that the, the wider impacts are so much um, so much more important. And I know when we do our um, digital inclusion programs, we always say it's about what matters to you. So if the person just wants to save money, then that's, you know, that's their their means of their hook and if you want for getting into digital it might not be to book a gp appointment or it might not be to book a gp appointment today it might be to you know whatsapp call someone um, their family in, in australia or something so i think those those wider determinants um you know and and the 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 general things that we know impact health inequalities are exactly the same factors that impact um, people's likelihood to be digitally excluded. So poverty, age, disability, um, not speaking English as your first language, etc. Um, I think when it comes to policy, um, I think there's there's two things really. Um, from from a, a, a public sector perspective, when we think about how funding flows, I think we have to get to a stage where any programs of work, and, and it doesn't matter whether it's digital funding or other program funding, but I think we need to have some sort of a mandate that there is a, a top or bottom slicing, whichever way you want to look at it, that uh, ring fences a, a portion of the, the funding for mitigating against digital exclusion and for, for contemplating digital exclusion. 
Um, and to that end, we've done some work in Lancashire and South Cumbria. We've created um, a citizen impact assessment. So that's looking at um, equality impact assessments, health and equality impact assessments, uh, environmental sustainability, but really importantly, digital impact assessments. And I think if we start to get people thinking in that way about how their um, programs of work that they're proposing might increase or decrease digital um, inequalities, then they can start to think about how they're going to ring fence some funding for that. And then the other thing that I, I, I think um, the wider um, industry and, and you know, the, the private sector at large as well, I think we need to start to talk about corporate digital responsibility. So we talk about CSR, corporate social responsibility, but what responsibility do, um, you know, our, our, our other big um, companies in the country um, have to ensure that they're supporting people digitally as well? And I know there's, there's been some work going on in that space. I think the term has become a little bit more commonplace, but probably not commonplace enough yet. Fantastic answer, Linda. Thank you very much. Dan, you put your hand up there. I'll come to you before I get to you, Sam, if that's okay. Do you want to take it away? Um, well, I, I was actually going to um, ask for Samuel's um, view, because yeah. I, I just think, obviously, um, and, and brilliant. Thank you, Linda, for that. That's really insightful and it's given me a lot to think about, particularly when we're, we're kind of, approaching our sort of planning um, aspect for this. I think, Samuel, you, you've got a really unique perspective, not just as a clinician, but also, you know, you, you're kind of working across multiple um, systems uh, with, with both Bob and, and Frimley. And I wonder, you know, do you, do you see that there's there's something perhaps even endemic really in, in systems in terms of their preparedness to kind of step up into this place? Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with 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 Linda, I think um, especially in the area of corporate social responsibility, I think organisations, um, at least across ICS, is it's um, it's important that the leadership of the ICS and the ICBs, you know, have um, um, a collective understanding of what needs to be done at system level, because I think um, that leadership is really important. Um, but what you begin to find is sometimes people that make decisions. Um, may not know what they want and that's where you get providers coming in and um, making decisions which um, are not in the best interest and um, are not value for money so we talk about leveling up for example and it's getting everyone from acute community and social care into one place to have the same view in terms of the outcome that they seek when they implement systems if that makes sense because there's this disparate um, implementation drive and what that what happens is we begin to have issues with GDPR, um, this system, you know, interoperability. So we're still having those um, issues. But ultimately, I think at a more granular level, looking at data as an asset, I think that's one of that's one thing that will make a step change um, in 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 access, digital access. Looking at data as an access, whether it's workforce data, whether it's estates, uh, care records, procurement. If we if we prioritize that, I think that's one uh, not a silver bullet, but um, it it might change the way that uh, we we make decisions. Thank you very much, and hopefully that answers your talking point and question. Uh, if you're happy, we can move on to the next. Unless anyone else wants to add anything. No, great. Thank you both uh, so much. Thanks, Rose. 
No worries. And um, so we are moving on to the next one, which is Samuel's. Uh, how does competition vendors help or hinder digital access and inequalities? And I will come straight back to you, Samuel, to help out with that one. So looking at vendors, I think I've just touched on it. Um, like I said, I worked as a help visitor and um, I was very frustrated when I worked in North London. Um, if a child had moved from Islington to Enfield, I sometimes couldn't see the records. Actually, I couldn't see the records. Um, I had to jump through hoops and for a clinician, that was incredibly frustrating. And I'm not, um, you know, someone who doesn't understand tech. So for the life of me, I couldn't understand why in the NHS with all the money that is spent, um, why we couldn't make that happen. And oftentimes you had GDPR thrown back at you, information governance as a barrier. Um, I actually got in touch with one of the IC, uh, the CCG leads then to, 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 to try and arrange a meeting and have the conversation. So it was incredibly frustrating. And I don't know if even now in the way that we plan, um, horizon scanning, you know, strategic planning, operational planning, if, uh, providers are part of that conversation. And I mean, independent providers as well, um, to, to look at systems that are unique and allow us to, you know, share records across, across the piece. Um, I know we're beginning to have things like CK system, uh, customer knowledge systems that, um, overlay, um, architecture that allows us to, to share records without worry of, um, of reaching GDPR. But that was kind of where my question was focused, um, provider and how we can, um, better manage the, 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 the provision so that we can access the data that we want. Thanks, Samuel, for providing that insight. Uh, Dan, I'll come back to you if that's okay. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Samuel. It's really, it's a really interesting question because, of course, um, in order to leave the market, you kind of need to know what you're looking for first. And I think probably one of the biggest challenges you alluded to it there, or you didn't allude to it, you, you laid it out, is often from a strategic perspective, um, systems don't necessarily have the the, the roadmap or, or the endpoint as well defined as you would want. And I, I guess it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation in the sense that, um, you know, I, I can see how you would want to find ways to work with digital partners in order to help you define that roadmap, because the, the innovation and the disruptive thinking is going to be in the space where people are kind of immersed in the possibility of tech rather than in the the probability of delivery in the healthcare space. And you kind of want to bring those two worlds together so you can create that um, uh, uh, sort of opportunity for um, ideas to be brought forward from that kind of friction between, you know, the, 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 the environment in which we work, the, the challenges that we face versus, um, uh, you know, the horizon of, um, possibility with 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 the digital space I, I think you know we 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 have to be really really clear about what it is that we want to do we have to be really really clear about how that ties back to the policy that's being driven through the system and um, by government and we have to be able to influence that by turn as well and I think one of the other big things that we're going to have to contend with is obviously the money is not great across the piece. You know, that that's going to become increasingly challenging. So 
we have to understand how we create the opportunity for innovation or we create the opportunity to answer the challenges that present themselves through innovative um, solutions. And I, I'm not quite sure we're all we're, we're there yet. I think we're on on that road. You know, we, we have, um, uh, you know, roles evolving, Linda, like yours, I guess, where we have, you know, specific resources allocated to developing those strategies and thinking about those solutions so that we can get to that point where we can leave that opportunity by tracking the the challenge into the market and saying to um, vendors and providers you know come on guys what what do you think you can do about this let's let's really test test those brains um so it is it is a bit of a an interesting uh, an interesting thing to try and contend with and and i i i hope my hope is that um, through all the kind of um, uncertainty that wraps itself around the birth of a new thing, which in essence our integrated care boards are, that that, that space is really supported and given the air it needs. Great, Dan. Thank you very much. And lastly, over to Linda. Thanks, Rose. And thanks, Samuel. That, that fabulous question, that really. Um, so, so when I think of um, our strategic approach to addressing digital inequalities in Lancs and South Cumbria, we've got four pillars um, and the fourth pillar. So the, the first two are around data and um, data as in um, connectivity and devices. The third one is digital activation. So knowledge, skills and confidence and, and the sort of handholding we give people. And then the fourth one is digital health literacy. And, and that to us is how we support our staff to understand what tools are out there to support patients and public with, and how we surface those tools and make sure that they're usable by the public, at, at, you know, as an end user. Um, so so there's, there's something in there around trying to co-design and make sure that we're addressing people's real problems. And um, I think there are, you know, there's, there's new apps and products out there for patients and public to use every you know every day there's something new and and I think the the market is becoming quite maybe not saturated yet well but yeah probably is saturated and I think it it's quite challenging um when frontline so I was a clinician as well I was an MSK physiotherapist and um you know you, you do get approached by vendors with lovely shiny solutions that um, we don't really know whether, first of all, they address the problems that we really have, the problems that really need solving. So I think that this is where the user-centered design comes in and understanding what our patients and public need and then understanding um, you know, what our staff need to support them. Um, so I think there's, there's two big things for me, and I think you've, you've definitely alluded to, to one of them, but the first is around interoperability. So when we look at programs like the National Wayfinder Programme, um, I think that has the potential to address some of the challenges you mentioned, Samuel, about patients across borders and boundaries, ge geographical boundaries. Um, you know, rather than the NHS app, which is a you know a great national channel, free at the point of use, free to us um, to support our patients with, but it's not going to do everything for everyone in every sector. And now being able to integrate other solutions so that. If we have a patient engagement portal for acute care in Langston, South Cumbria, and a patient lives on the border with Greater Manchester, they, they can access both patient engagement portals through the same um, single digital point of access. And I think there's something about the simplicity for patients and people to be able to use these tools. So, so that interop at the back end, I think, is really important. And I think 
as we um, procure various solutions to support, you know, virtual um, pre-op assessments and um, um, OCVC, as well as engagement portals, it's really important that we know the vendors that we're working with are, are going to plug plug into each other and allow that that front end seamless experience. And then the second thing uh, I want to pick up and that you you referred to was around standards. So I think standards compliance can be a challenge. There there are core standards that you know um, clinical safety, for example, that most um, suppliers, especially the ones on frameworks, are now complying with. But there are other standards that help us work more strategically that we don't always have the suppliers adopting. So I'll give an example of some work we're doing um, for the last couple of years. We've been developing a single digital catalogue of third sector services, BCFSE sector services. And um, we're adopting the Open Referral UK, which is an open data standard. Um, it's been endorsed by the local um, government association. It's been endorsed by DCMS, DLUC, and the cabinet office have supported it. And yet in healthcare, we're we're kind of new to it, but it it's a massive strategic driver for us to be able to ensure that when third sector services are surfaced in a digital tool that the public will access. So that could be an app to support your asthma. Uh, management and you want to find things like a Breathe Easy group or it could be um, a children and young people's website that allows you to find information to manage your child's health conditions and local services. We want to ensure that all the data that that feeds those various front door tools is captured once, standardised you know, with the, the OR UK standards and then pushed to um, whichever front door people need to access and trying to get the suppliers to comply with that standard or to allow us to push the data to them. So either adopt the standards themselves or create a schema that allows us to be able to, to plug into them can be really, really challenging. So I think back to Dan's point, it's, it's about how do we drive the um, the technology industry um, to up their game a little bit and um, because ultimately it's got to be about the end user experience and how easy it is for people to find the right information, the right support at the right time without having to juggle five different apps to do so. Uh, thank you, Linda. Samuel, I'll come back to you to get the final thoughts there. No, I just wanted to 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 add the skills um, aspect of it as well. I think um, having dealt with a few providers, I think it will be interesting that the NHS begins to have a talent pool I mean, in terms of contributing to the digital landscape and, and whether that's true budding or in my my personal opinion would be to to have that contractually captured so that when uh, vendors come in to work for an organization, they have a body system so that you can, you know, get that in because it's quite difficult getting um, the, the right skills into, into the NHS. And that way we can also begin to think about uh, democratizing uh, technology within the NHS. We saw what happened during COVID, and um, I don't think there are any service managers in the NHS now who can do the hiring process, which used to be strictly for for HR. So we need to start thinking in, in that way. Thank you very much. Great stuff. Um, we will move on to the next point given by Linda. So 
Given that digital inclusion and digital equality is everyone's business and all sectors have potential to gain from people being more digitally activated, how do we measure the cross-societal success of our efforts to address it and the remaining divide we are now attempting to narrow? Linda, I'll come to you for that first response. Thanks, Rose. Um, so yeah, th- this question was based on a couple of things. So first of all, um, it's a challenge to, um, or it could be a challenge to measure the impact of our efforts. And and I think um, it's fair to say we're not always as good as we should be at measuring return on investment. Um, and with something like digital inclusion, it's quite easy to to demonstrate the qualitative return on investment. But how do we how do we prove and justify that we're making a big difference to people's lives and that and this goes back to uh, my response to the first question to Dan's around the both the direct and indirect ways that digital exclusion impacts health inequalities so there's the the direct access to healthcare but then there's all the other things like if i am digitally activated i am more likely to achieve a higher level of education I'm more likely to earn more, and the evidence shows this, I'm more likely to earn more, I'm more likely to um, live in better housing, and I am more likely to um, pay less outgoings on on things, commodities that I buy, because people can can find cheaper ways to do so. So we're in this sort of very cross-sectoral place where interventions can be provided by healthcare, by local government, by um, libraries, by uh, third sector organizations. Uh, It may be that the third sector organizations are providing the devices and the data through grant schemes, but the NHS are providing the skills and and budding and digital activation support. So I'm I'm just curious to uh, know what Dan and Samuel think about the way we, and maybe, maybe creatively, how could we measure our impacts that may well be outside of healthcare but we know we'll still have a an impact on health outcomes. Um, so yeah, that's that's where that one's coming from. Thank you, Linda. Samuel, I'll come to you. It's it's a simple but um tricky question. Um I think I think um two short answers would be innovation and an engagement. So when I say innovation, some of the impacts would be outside of healthcare would be innovation, uh, tech innovation because it can be used and uh, socialized and shared and improved. So there is there is that. But ultimately, it would be engagement, um, how citizens uh, begin to engage with um, health data um, to address some of the inequalities that you, you've mentioned. I think health literacy is one of those things. Um, if we um, increase access to, to, to uh, digital and technology, um, it's important that we promote um, health literacy. So having educational programs, for example, uh, to help you know, improve uh, health literacy in 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 some of those uh, rural or or disadvantaged groups. I think it's important because it's 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 imperative that they are able to understand health terminology and concepts. So I've worked in Herefordshire, for example, and we had schemes in the community, traveling communities, who sometimes didn't understand information that we were pushing out to them, so they couldn't act on it. So I think that's really important, obviously underpinned by data privacy and security. Um, but importantly, I think there's something we need to start thinking about is the algorithmic, algorithmic biases um, that AI uh, presents. 
So there are some there are some biases across certain groups, and those things need to be need to be addressed and and, and looked at. So those are some of the benefits that we can have in the in the long term. Really interesting. Thank you. And Dan, coming to you. Thanks, Rose, and thanks, um, Samuel. I was just uh, contemplating your point around algorithmic biases biases in um uh, in AI, and I suppose when when they're kind of setting up the the rules to support the implementation of you know whatever neural net or whatever, there are going to be um limitations you know um inbuilt into that and i think that's that sounds like an incredibly interesting and rich area for research and exploration and um, because of the you know the potential for embedding those those biases at a fundamental level is phenomenal really um but just uh i, th- I think you could do a whole podcast just on that probably it's a good topic <laughs> yeah it would last years as well and it would be great um, but we need a lot of coffee and a lot of chocolate rose. And um, just just coming back to Linda's question, I, I think if you if you ask like, how are you going to measure impact for somebody who predominantly works in operations and performance, basically you're going to say, well, what number are you trying to shift? And I I think the you know it comes back to the point I think Samuel was making as well around the the targeting and the opportunity that gets created. We have to be really really clear about what it is that we're trying to do right at the beginning. And then ask ourselves a question at the end: Did we do what we set out to do? Um, and um, we, we've got this sort of um, fundamental, like dichotomy, really between the opportunity that exists in the world of innovation versus the problems that we need to try and solve. Um, and in the middle of that, there's there's this kind of um, resource challenge where there probably isn't, you know, the investment that you would want to make into the kind of opportunity and innovation space. In order to understand better what 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 these these issues are over over here in in the in the problem space, I I, I always think though you know let let's try and let's try and make it as straightforward as possible and and figure out where where the priorities lie, you know what what are the what are the what are the areas that we're going to have to shift. Linda, yes, Samuel. Can I ask? Um, because other than hard and soft data, did you? have any sort of data points in mind in terms of measuring you know you you know i'll be thinking about benchmarking and then so so where we where we've gone we've we've asked the question and we've asked some academics you know how do we best measure our impact given that our impact might be felt far away from where we're directing it so we're funding these programs of work through healthcare and, um, and 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 sometimes more specific than that, we might be using primary care digital funding or elective recovery digital funding to provide patients and public with um, activation support. So support to onboard with tools, but not just healthcare tools. And um, it may be that we impact those people's wider determinants of health more immediately or or in the long term than we impact their behaviours with healthcare. So so trying to um, measure impact directly in terms of return on investment, I think, is a big challenge. And so um, rather than trying to measure it as a, you know, reduction in outpatient appointment um, attendance or people's utilisation of healthcare in other ways, We've pretty much come to the conclusion that the 
we have to sort of indirectly measure. So we know that if people are digitally activated, that their health inequalities risks decreases. And so um, we've resorted to measuring things like um, their improvement in skills, their increased utilization of digital tools. So we're measuring things much closer to the person rather than how they interact or transact with health and care. Um, and I'd love to know if there's any really good research. And, and Dan got me thinking as he was chatting about the fact that um, and I keep thinking about would I like to do a PhD and what topic would I would I want to explore? And I'm trying to find that really robust, tight, niche question to answer. Um, and so, so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of exploring things like that at the minute. But I'd love to know whether there is evidence out there around, um, I think it, it happens with patient activation measure, whereby um, they've done some research to understand what a step change in patient activation measure means in financial terms to people's utilization of healthcare. Um, so insignia that, am I allowed to say product names? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, okay, okay, also. So insignia who created the patient activation measure have, have researched and evidence that so we can start to look at someone's activation increasing maybe from a one to a two. That means it will have this impact on healthcare. And I'd love to see us have some similar way of extrapolating what the benefits might be for healthcare when we change somebody's digital activation level. And I don't know if we're there yet or if somebody's doing that work. If they are, I'd love to hear about it. Some on the strip. Can I, as for listeners, it might be useful, Linda, for you to define um, patient activation, because that's how I got to know the podcast. I, I went on a run and I selected it at random and I started listening to this podcast. So that's a good idea. OK, uh, you're going to have a lot of editing to do, right? OK, so so if I go back to I mentioned earlier about digital activation and digital activation is a term that we use um, almost as a as a next step from patient activation. So Patient activation is considered to be the knowledge, skills and confidence somebody has to manage their health and well-being independently. And um, and to us, digital activation is somebody's knowledge, skills and confidence to use digital tools to manage their health and well-being. And patient activation, um, there is a, a defined uh, measure that can be used. And um, there are around 20 questions, I think, that ask people how confident they feel to do things, how much knowledge and understanding they have. And uh, those results give people a score between one and four, which um, if you imagine I might be in patient activation score of four. And if I am a four, I think it's fair to say that if I have health needs, I'm quite likely to go for a digital route first. So if I'm, my blood pressure's going up, I'm gaining a bit of weight, I know I need to get out on my bike and I need to get my Strava app to motivate me and encourage me to do a little bit more this week than last week. And I'll get the MyFitnessPal app so that I can start to monitor my, my intake of food, etc. Um, whereas if I was a patient activation measure one, a PAM score of one, I might in a digital world, need much more handholding to be able to give me more knowledge and skills and confidence, not only to manage my health and well-being, but to use digital tools to do so. In fact, thanks, Linda. Um, 
before Dan had a technical interrupt interruption uh do you want to come back in just to finish off your point and just i don't know if you knew where you left off but you just mentioned the integrated care boards have a big decision and then we didn't we didn't hear the rest of it yeah the 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 integrated care boards need to figure out what their strategic priorities are at the earliest opportunity um in order to then help direct where we focus investment of both time and money in in supporting digital programs. And I I, I think boards across England are in different places with this. Um, You know, they're all on different journeys, aren't they? So it's it's quite a tricky one. And and as ever, um, in the NHS, we, we, we risk missing the opportunity that presents itself. Because every, every year we, 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 approach a new horizon of um, development and, and innovation. And, um, it would be really great for us to find a way to to shape that differently. And I, I think, you know, reflecting on on all the, the questions um, that we've heard today, um, but also thinking particularly about Samuel's question, I mean, that that's the crux of the issue. How can we move from being reactive to being um, a, a driving force for change in definition of, of of what the need is, but also in addressing um, both the inherent inequalities of healthcare and using digital as a tool to reduce that. And then, um, you know, Linda's point, <laughs> then finding a way of bridging the, the, the gap of inequality that then gets created by the different levels of engagement uh, across across the spectrum um, within, uh, within the, the, the um, population of of the England uh, of England, amazing, good, good points there. Um, just before we come to the end, I would like to thank you all very much for those thoughts and, and the conversation today has been uh, really interesting for myself as well. The guests today, for those listening, have been Samuel, Linda, and Dan. Uh, if you're hiring for a new technical role or you're looking for a new role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a future podcast, please drop me a message. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, but thank you very much for everyone listening and thanks so much for my guests today. You've been fantastic.